Hello, welcome back to my podcast called Land of the Golden Sunset. James Kenny here, and this episode is entitled Christianity, Vikings, and King Henry II. When the fame of royal Tara reached Rome, Pope Celestine I sent Palladius as the first bishop of Ireland, with several priests in attendance, to try and convert the pagans from the Druidic culture, which was widespread at the time in Ireland in the year 431 AD. Palladius preached to the Druids on the principle of love and forgiveness in the Christian faith, pointing out that Jesus, the son of the one true God, born of a woman, had his young body stretched out on a cross by the soldiers of the rulers of Jerusalem, and with spikes they hammered his arms and legs firmly to the wood where he was left to die. But the Druids cried out in loud angry voices, Show us! Show us the way he died. Others said, If a man dies, what is that to us? All men die at some time. By way of explanation, Palladius held up an effigy of the crucifixion, explaining the torture that his saviour of mankind suffered. But they cried out again and asked, How could such torture be an act of love? And cruelty is the very opposite of love. It is hate you are preaching. It is lies you are telling us. Be gone, liar. Palladius tried every way to convince them, even making the sign of the cross to bless them. But this incensed them even more, and they, refusing to believe that the cruel punishment just displayed should be regarded by them as an icon of love, they rejected him and his band of priests, and ran them out of the country. Palladius returned to Rome, and related all that happened on the island of Ireland. The Pope was sad to hear that their mission was a failure. But then, he suddenly remembered that one of his priests, named Patricius, had spent many years in Ireland. When he was young, and he was very well acquainted with its people and customs, and could speak to them in their own language. And so the Pope sent a messenger to Patrick, requesting his presence. When he arrived, the Pope consecrated him as bishop, and directed him to return to Ireland. Patrick and his entourage landed near Dublin, in what is now Bray, but a hostile crowd compelled them to re-embark. The holy men took their boat further along the coast to Skerries, but failed to put ashore, and headed north for several days, eventually landing near Strandford Lock in the year 432, when Patrick was aged 47. The story of Patrick is well known, and I don't intend to go into it in great detail on this occasion, except to say that his great achievement and success as a Christian missionary is commemorated each year in Ireland 
on the 17th of March. With a sprig of shamrock being the symbol he cleverly used to convert the Druids and eventually the people of Ireland to the Christian faith. Before he died at the age of 76 in the year 461, the nation became well known for its learning. Men came from every country in the known world to be educated and to take back with them the gifts of faith in the Christian religion. Irish scholars and holy men went abroad to teach and instruct in every country. Ireland was a Mecca, a jewel of learning for all to behold. The kings of Ireland in those ancient times commanded and led their own armies in battle. So it was that the battleground became their deathbed. Their fame as courageous warriors or Celtic braves spread so much that at the dawn of Christianity, when the Romans were masters of nearly the whole of the known world, those all-conquering Romans did not risk trying to invade and conquer Ireland. Some of the last great kings to have reigned at that time were a Nile of the Nine Hostages, 368 to 395 AD, King Dahi, 395 to 418, and Lyra MacNeil, 418 to 448, all prior to the Christian era in Ireland, which gradually took over from the pagan Druids. And it is said that Lyra MacNeil was an advisor to St. Patrick. Meanwhile, in far-off Greece, the first economic thinkers, Socrates, 470 to 399 BC, Plato, 428 to 348 BC, and Aristotle, 384 to 322 BC. They were philosophizing, and their teachings would, in time, influence Western civilization in their economic activity forever. Now, back to the main subject. Then the Vikings came, like hordes of angry locusts, raiding, plundering and desecrating. The native people were continuously harassed by incessant war. Firstly, in about 795, the Norwegian Vikings arrived, and then, around 849, the Danish pirates came, well equipped to wage war. They had swords of steel against the inferior and now outdated arms of the Irish warriors. They had no respect for Ireland's way of life or Christian religion. So they torched the holy places, burnt churches and monasteries, plundered them of gold and silver, jewellery and valuables. They killed and murdered anyone who stood in their way, until King Brianberu of Kinkora and his army of courageous soldiers marched to meet them and were victorious at the Battle of Clontarf outside Dublin on Good Friday in the year 1014. Unfortunately, when the battle was over, the king knelt to give thanks to God for deliverance, but he was set upon and brutally murdered. The Vikings were not fully subdued by this victory. In fact, it was not until August the 23rd in the year 1103 when their king, Magnus, and his followers 
were defeated at Strangford Lock in Northern Ireland. Archaeologists who have excavated known Viking burial sites have found that those warring Vikings who invaded Ireland and caused such terrible destruction all over the country were a much taller race of people, having their reddish hair and blue eyes with wide mouth, aquiline nose and high cheekbones, forming an oval-shaped head. When the Vikings were subdued, they settled in coastal areas and with their industry and knowledge were responsible for laying the foundations of towns like Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Wexford. They were skilled and industrious and set up in business as artisans. They were now accepted and mixed freely with the native population. They intermarried and the resulting offspring were truly of the Celtic breed. To repair the evils of the Danish invasion and the resulting demoralisation of Irish Christian ways and practices, the Synod of Kells took place in 1152 under the presidency of Giovanni Cardinal Paparoni, at which gathered the heads of all the great septs, bishops, priests and chieftains. Strict laws of Christian morality were laid down to be practised. Each year thereafter, a special religious revival took place. In the year 1167, a great religious council was held in Athboy in County Meath, at which 13,000 warriors on horseback attended to hear from their chiefs and bishops the renewal of Christian values in the Decalogue, which exhorted the people to agree to and to practice from that day forward. When those renewed Christian proposals were conveyed to London, the English authorities were envious, and Lanfranc, Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote to MacDiarmida O'Brien, King of Munster, congratulating him on the renewed Christian spirit now shown by the Irish. Donald Moore O'Brien, from 1168 to 1194, was the last King of Munster. It is believed that he is buried within St. Mary's Cathedral, Limerick, a church he first organised, an ancient stone coffin lid, purportedly that of King Donal, lies in the chancel near the high altar. Further praise came from Anselm, one of the great saints, and Archbishop under the Red King Rufus, otherwise known as William II. He wrote to MacDiarmida O'Brien, King of Munster, saying, I give thanks to God for the many good things we hear, and especially for the profound peace which the subjects of your realm now enjoy. They were probably thinking of the terrible anarchy and impiety which was rampant in England at the time under Red Rufus. While Ireland enjoyed peace and religious revival during the years that elapsed since the Viking invasions, the true saying that out of evil cometh some good seems very apt when applied to the 300 years of Viking occupation of Ireland, during which time they introduced new skills and developed a craft culture of the Iron and Bronze Age. Experts in those age cultures cannot agree on the exact date of their introduction. However, archaeologists have discovered ornamental bronze spearheads 
now deposited in the Museum of the National Irish Academy, and are regarded as possibly from this period. Also, the Hunt Museum in Limerick has a wealth of artefacts, also dating from this period of Irish history. We are now entering another period in Ireland's troubled history, when once again the warring tribes of Europe came with their conquering armies, and which the native people were soon to learn to fear. They were known by various names like Saxon or Low German, which having conquered England were known as Anglo-Saxon. Then came the French, known in England as Norman conquerors, and there followed those known as Anglo-Normans, and later still they developed into being the Norman Irish, the Anglo-Irish, the English ascendancy, and the Irish aristocracy. This is the story of how all that came about in that period of troubled Irish history, leading to the Norman-French invasion of Ireland. King Henry II, 1113 to 1189, like William the Conqueror, was French. He was born in Normandy, and hence the Appalachian. In 1155, Pope Adrian IV, who was English-born, was displeased with Irish Catholicism, and allegedly gave Henry a papal bull from the Vatican in Rome for the purpose of promoting the glory of God in Ireland. The Vikings, who at one time also threatened to overrun England and were halted in their attempt by the Anglo-Saxon Alfred the Great, he was king of Wessex from 871 to 886 and king of the Anglo-Saxons from 886 to 899. He was the youngest son of King Athelwulf. His father died when he was young, and three of Alfred's brothers reigned in turn before him. After ascending the throne, Alfred spent several years fighting Viking invasions. He won a decisive victory at the Battle of Eddington in 878, and made an agreement with the Vikings, creating what was known as the Danelaw in the north of England. Alfred also oversaw the conversion of the Viking leader Guthrum to Christianity. Alfred defended his kingdom against the Vikings and became the dominant ruler in England. The Anglo-Saxon kingdom ended with the defeat of the Saxon King Harold at the Battle of Hastings in 1066 by William Duke of Normandy, known as William the Conqueror. King William introduced a method of landholding dating from the Middle Ages in Europe and called the feudal system, where the land was divided into feuds or fiefs and given over to a tenant to have and to hold for as long as he rendered service to his lord or superior. Then, in 1085, he ordered all the tenants to declare the amount of land held by them and its use, also to include all forestry and rivers or streams, and any other relevant detail down to the number of people employed. This was then used for the purpose of tax assessment, and was recorded in what is known as the Doomsday Book, written in Latin text. Now, back to the main subject. In later years in England, under King John, tenants became angry at his efforts 
to further extract money from them in violation of their feudal rights. They produced a document called the Magna Carta, which they compelled this grabbing king to sign. And so King John had to sign at Runnymede in 1215. One of the declarations therein was to the effect that the king was bound by all later legislation of Parliament and an interpretation of the right of trial by jury. This was foremost in establishing the system of limited monarchy, which still operates at the present time in England. The foregoing is by way of showing what was in store for the natives on the island of Ireland within a truly short time. In the next century, peace and religious revival were set at zero all over Europe, including Ireland. Proof exists that the papal document given to Henry was a forgery by someone other than the Pope, because immediately after his consecration, the Pope had to flee from Rome due to the unrest led by Arnold of Brescia. Arnold became an Augustinian canon and then prior of a monastery in Brescia. He criticised the Catholic Church's temporal powers that involved it in a land struggle against the Count Bishop of Brescia. He called on the Church to renounce its claim and return ownership to the city government so as not to be tainted by possession. Renunciation of worldliness being one of his primary teachings, he was condemned at the Second Lateran Council in 1139 and forced from Italy. Having returned to Italy, Arnold made his peace in 1145 with Pope Eugenie III, who ordered him to submit himself to the mercy of the Church of Rome. When he arrived, he found that Giordano Perleone's followers had asserted the ancient rights of the Commune of Rome, taken control of the city from papal forces and founded a republic. Arnold sided with the people immediately, and after Pier Leone's deposition, soon rose to the intellectual leadership of the Commune, calling for liberties and democratic rights. Arnold thought that clergy who owned property had no power to perform the sacraments. He succeeded in driving Pope Eugenie into exile in 1146, for which he was excommunicated in 1148, when Pope Eugenie returned to the city. Meanwhile, the Leinster king in Ireland was also urging Henry II to visit Ireland, not for religious reasons, but for waging war, in what was to become known as the Norman invasion of Ireland. Dermot MacMurrow made such wild, extravagant promises to Henry that Henry gave him a letter addressed to all his subjects, English, Norman, Welsh and Scots, requesting them to rally to the support of the Irishmen in his quest to have his crown restored. The French Normans were land-hungry and ruthless. They were well-trained for battle and were also the best horsemen in Europe. MacMurrow had been banished because of an alleged adulterous relationship with the wife of Tiernan O'Rourke, named Divergilla. They were both in their early forties when this elopement took place. Some say it was planned and carried out by Divergilla. O'Rourke was king of Brefni, and with his assistance from his neighbouring kings, they drove MacMurrah away, and he fled to France to implore help from Henry. 
Research by O'Curry among ancient manuscripts throw some further light on this episode of Dee Vargilla's elopement with MacMurrow. She did not return to her home or her husband, O'Rourke, but entered a religious retreat house for 40 years and lived a life of piety in reparation for her error and wickedness. She had a large fortune, which she used to build churches and convents, and to give aid to the poor. There was no great rush to assist MacMurrow when he produced Henry's letter to the Normans, so he sought out one of the bravest Norman leaders in Wales. This warrior, known as Richard Fitzgilbert de Clare, but better known in Ireland's history by his nickname as Strongbow. He made a pact with the Irishman to help restore him to power, on condition that, as a widower, he would be given his eldest's daughter, Aoife, in marriage, with the right to succeed to the Leinster kingdom. Dermot MacMorrow returned to Ireland with a small band of mercenaries, having skulked around Europe to make up an army to invade and fight his own native people in retaliation and revenge. Early in the month of May 1169, a small flotilla of strange vessels put into a little creek on the Wexford coast near Banno. This was the advance force of the Norman invasion of Ireland, led by Robert Fitzstephen. It should be noted that when the Norwegians and Danes were eventually defeated, the Irish in their hour of triumph permitted them and their families to remain in Dublin, Wexford, Wicklow and Waterford, the result of which most of the eastern seaboard was occupied by these families at this time. They had intermarried and lived in peace and harmony for centuries, until the Norman invasion. Another small invading force arrived the following day, led by Morris de Prendergast. With whatever troops he could muster, MacMorrow joined them and they marched on Wexford and captured the town. Next, they marched on Ossery and captured it. But they were defeated after a skirmish near Ferns by the Irish under O'Connor and O'Rourke. MacMorrow now agreed to a truce and guaranteed his own son as hostage. But the crafty renegade was only playing for time. No sooner were the terms agreed than he sent an urgent message to Strongbow promising gold and silver and riches of land to those who would come and support him. Strongbow responded with a large trained army, which landed on the 23rd of August, and so Dublin fell to the invaders soon after, on the 21st of September, 1170. Henry Fitzempress, now King Henry II, arrived in Ireland to curb the ambitions of Strongbow, whom he feared was intent on setting himself up as king in Ireland. Henry landed with his army in October 1171 and marched triumphantly through most of the lands of Ireland, except the northwest parts, where the native princes were fighting their own disputes and were not at all concerned at the arrival of a foreign king. By the Treaty of Windsor in 1175, Henry agreed to recognise Rory O'Connor as the Ordre, or High King, of all the unconquered lands. But despite this, he secretly began to sign away the lands which still belonged to the Gaelic-Irish. 
At this time also, Munster was so thickly populated by the Normans that it became the most French of countries outside of France. With treachery in their minds and hearts, the Normans crossed the River Shannon, plundering and confiscating all before them, from Athlone to Boyle to Westport, so that, within eight years of arriving, they had taken three quarters of all the land of Ireland, leaving the unproductive badlands to the natives. Henry II, while he made treaties with the Irish kings, had secretly divided the whole of Ireland into ten sections. In fact, he robbed Irish people and their chieftains of every acre of land in this way, but they were not able to take possession of any of the sections, as it is far easier to assign property not yet stolen than to put the thieves into possession of it. King Henry, in old age, and with his prestige and power now passing him by, was confined to his bed, very ill, and in this state he was forced to come to terms and sign a document granting immunity to his rebellious barons. Being curious to know the identity of those plotting against him, he requested and was given a list of all the names, and he was shocked and horrified to find the name of his favourite son and heir, who was destined to take over in Ireland as the future King John. But this cruel son was also a scheming brother, with an inherited and cruel streak in him. When his brother Richard was absent at the Crusades, John arranged and planned his death with the French king, arranging to have him thrown into a dungeon until death claimed him. This wickedness came naturally to him, since his father, Henry II, was involved in the murder of his archbishop, Thomas A. Becket. When John became king at the age of 32 in 1199, to remove a possible rival, he murdered his nephew. John appears to have decided to have Arthur killed with the aim of removing his potential rival and of undermining the rebel movement in Brittany. Arthur had initially been imprisoned at Falaise and was then moved to Rouen. After this, Arthur's fate remains uncertain. Most historians believe he was murdered by John. The annals of Margam Abbey suggest that John had captured Arthur and kept him alive in prison for some time in the castle of Rouen. When John was drunk, he slew Arthur, tied a heavy stone to the body and cast it in the Seine. Arthur's sister, Eleanor, who had also been captured at Mirabeau, was kept imprisoned by John for many years, albeit in relatively good conditions. She was imprisoned from 1202, and thus became the longest imprisoned member of an English royal family. As a prisoner, she was also unable to press her claim to the Duchy of Brittany as her mother's heiress. Later, John divorced his wife and took Isabella, a younger and prettier bride, and caused his many barons to turn against him and become his enemies. Those Anglo-Norman invaders in Ireland were well versed in deeds of depravity and deception. This fact is borne out when a matrix forged papal seal for use on bogus papal bulls was found years later in the ruins of one of the earliest Anglo-Norman monasteries founded by John de Courcy 
and is now kept in the Royal Irish Academy. Lawrence or Lorcan O'Toole, the first native-born prelate of Dublin, at the age of 32, was chosen by the beleaguered citizens of Dublin to parley with the Normans. But while he was thus engaged, having gone to their camp, Milo de Gogan and Raymond de Gross, at the head of a strong band of Normans, broke into the city of Dublin and slaughtered anyone who resisted. Archbishop Lawrence O'Toole now hurried to try and prevent further bloodshed by this cruel invader, but to no avail. This holy man, canonised by sanctity and patriotism, was the son of Lord of Emael, and was the chief of his clan. His favourite sister was the wife of that traitor MacMorrow, and mother of Aoife, the bartered bride of Strongbow. MacMorrow, who without thought or care, but motivated by greed, had forfeited his own son to debt when he failed to keep his agreement with the Gaelic-Irish chieftains. Now, when his own end drew near, his body was eaten into with painful cancer-like wounds, and he died screaming in pain. When Lawrence O'Toole went to England, on his last voyage, officers of the Crown took him prisoner, and he was told never to set foot in his native land again, by order of Henry II. This, remember, is the king who claimed to have received a papal document instructing him to go to Ireland for the express purpose of seeing a renewal of the Roman Catholic faith. It is likely that a pope who knew him so well and an Englishman would grant him such a document. After all, he was known as the murderer of bishops, the robber of churches, the destroyer of ecclesiastical liberty, and was accused of violating and raping his son Richard's betrothed. In Europe, he had the name of being possessed by evil spirits. It was said that when he became angry, he would get into a mad fit of rage, tear off all his clothes and sit naked, chewing straw and grunting like a beast. It is also said that a painful end was predicted for all those who had a hand in the desecration of the holy places on the island of Ireland. Strongbow was struck down by a similar illness to that of his co-conspirator MacMorrow, which started in his foot and spread upwards until his whole body was consumed in a mass of sores, and he died a most painful death. His body lies entombed at Christ Church Cathedral in Dublin, which he helped to rebuild. <laughs>